Good morning, church. You may not know it, but you were just pastored really, really well in song. Uh, you may have not realized all the different lines of the songs that, that Graham picked for a specific reason, but I do because I've been in this all week. We've been working together, and my goodness, I hope you go. Did you do the Spotify playlist this week? He's going to do the Spotify playlist because you need to go back and listen to all of these songs and see the lines that, that help us. He preached the sermon in song this morning for us, so thank you, brother. Uh, Romans chapter 9, uh, I'm guessing page 889 or so in the Black Bibles near you, uh, if you have a copy of God's Word of your own, I encourage you to look at yours and uh, read along with me. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. But they are, they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed 
in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's pray. Father, would you help us see you more clearly in this text? May we look at you, not ourselves, in trying to understand what you are revealing about yourself. Let us start with you and end with us rather than starting with ourselves and ending with you. God, help us. Break our hearts for the lost this morning and let us rejoice or take hold of the mercy that is offered us in Christ. I ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in uh, just that short partial reading of Romans chapter 9, you are church that have been here for a little while. You, have, you are probably even more thankful that I challenged you to memorize Romans chapter 8 rather than Romans chapter 9. Because Romans chapter 9 has some difficult sentences that may not be as comforting as Romans chapter 8. I said uh, a couple weeks ago that Romans chapter 8, 1 through 11 was kind of like the diving board of Romans chapter 8. And, and that was just an image that helped me in my mind because as I kept going, I was like, but it doesn't stop. It keeps going. Not only are these realities true of those who are in Christ, but these identities are true of those who are in Christ. It was like the diving board springing us up. And then last week, I, um, not even thinking about that, but was saying this is now at the end of Romans 8 is like the, the climax. It's like the height of maybe at least Romans 8, but at least maybe of even all of Romans. It's the height of it. So now I'm going to put these together. Diving board, right? Springing you forward to the height. Okay? Then what happens as you begin to come back down? Dive into the deep end, right? Romans 9 through 11 is the deep end. We are about to go swimming deep. And you, we, we uh, uh, by God's grace, we were just able to move, and the house that we moved into had a pool. Uh, but there's no deep end. It's, it's five feet. There's no diving allowed. Lots of cannonballs, lots of jumping in, but no diving allowed. I lost my front tooth to a diving accident a long time ago. Now you're all going to stare at me even closer. No diving in our shallow end. That's what the deep pools are for. You dive into the deep end and you get to enjoy that. Now when you go deep, something happens if you go deep enough. You get down to the deep end of the pool and, and sometimes your ears start to hurt, right? And, and when your ears hurt, you either push and swim up and say, I don't want it. Mm -mm. I don't want to be in the deep end anymore. I want out of this. I want back in the shallow end. Or if you're wise, if you're smart, if you want to stay in the deep end, you can readjust your ears, the pressure on your ears. And you can stay down longer. You can even go deeper and, and stay in there a little bit longer. Well, 
I think a lot of people hear statements like in Romans chapter 9, they've gone to the deep end and they read that and they say, "Uh uh-uh, get me to the top. I don't want to hear about that. And unfortunately, not only do they not, they don't even want the deep end, they don't even want the shallow end anymore. And you know some of these people. They've called themselves Christians. And, and then they began to consider the things of God in, in God's Word and says, if God's like that, I don't want any, any part of it. I don't want to just stay in the shallow end. I just don't want any more. I don't want it anymore. They've deconstructed is the popular term nowadays for their faith. And I want to encourage us as a church to be able to swim in the deep end. And the way that we're going to be able to do that well is what I prayed just before this, is that we would have our eyes on God first, not man first. We may not be able to fully understand and explain every detail of every sentence in this passage, but that doesn't make God any less God, doesn't make him unjust, it doesn't make his word uh, untrue, it makes him God, it makes him worthy of worship. And so let's learn to swim well in this deep end of Romans 9 through 11, the next few weeks and months, uh, this passage will be helpful, and um, Paul's uh, heart in this moment was broken. Broken for those whom uh, he had seen not, not only leave the deep end, leave the shallow end, and not want to play any longer in the pool, the pool of faith. Uh, they, they didn't want anything to, to do with it anymore. Paul had just finished uh, telling us so well at the height of his jump off the diving board in Romans 8 Uh, that God has saved us and that no one or nothing can separate us. And yet, when you consider that truth at the end of Romans 8, he begins thinking of his brothers and sisters. When he thinks about God's salvation and the fact that no one can separate, he begins to think about his fellow Jewish family members who, like he previously had done, had rejected Christ. So is it true? Does God save? God said he would save Israel and that none would separate, but it looks like there's a lot of Jews who've been separated, who've rejected Christ. And when Paul begins to dwell upon those loved ones who have rejected Christ were still rejecting Christ. His heart broke. Look at what he says in 9, chapter 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul is a author of God's inspired Word. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Everything we have written down by Paul in the Bible is true. It isn't a lie. It does bear witness 
with the Holy Spirit. And yet Paul felt it necessary to insert those words just as a reminder, uh, just as a, a word of emphasis, highlighting that um, these are not just his thoughts. These are not just his cultural ideas that he's trying to pass on. This is God's Word. And this is what he says in verse 2. I have great, emphatically he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. If that doesn't describe a broken heart for his fellow countrymen, I don't know what does. We've all been sorrowful for friends and family members at one time or another, and Paul's saying, I've had that, but this is greater. This is such great sorrow, and my anguish is never stopping. It continues on and on. So much so, look in verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul's heart is so broken that the Jewish nation, his Jewish brothers and sisters, were rejecting Christ, that he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. And it was so great and it was so unceasing that Paul said, I'll give up my salvation if you would save them, Lord. When was the last time you, you, your heart broke that bad for someone in your life who doesn't know Christ? You see, Paul is helping us to realize that the beautiful doctrine of God's salvation in Romans chapter 8 must then lead to a broken heart for the lost. If, we don't, if our hearts don't break for the lost, then we haven't understood God's salvation clearly. We haven't understood Romans chapter 8 yet. If, if we're not feeling what Paul is feeling in these verses right here, we haven't un- understood fully. Paul was willing to give up his own eternal life that these other brothers might have eternal life. He was willing to let himself be accursed, anathematized, damned is what the word means. God, send me to hell so that they can spend eternity in heaven. What a statement. What a reflection of his understanding of, of God's salvation, realizing that it's not of ourselves, but of, of the Lord. John Stott quoted Martin Luther about this, who, who wrote, It seems incredible that a man would desire to be damned in order that the damned might be saved. But this is nothing new. Moses himself thought very similarly. And he lets us know in Exodus chapter 32, uh, Moses' heart there in Exodus 32, 32, after the people had melted down their gold and fashioned a golden calf and God's anger and wrath were against them, 
It says in Exodus 32, verse 31, So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses says, don't blot them out, God. Blot me out instead of them. And this is what Paul was saying. I wish, I just wish that I could lay down my life for my brother, my sister, my mom, my dad, my Jewish nation, that they might know who Christ is and stop rejecting Him. I I wish that I could do that. But Moses and Paul knew that it wasn't possible. This is why Paul said, I think, I wish. I wish I could do that. Because both of them knew that only one person could give up their life for another. Only one person could be accursed for the sins of those who would believe. Only one person could be literally cut off from the Father for the sake of another. Paul's life, Paul was not God. It wouldn't matter if he gave up his life. Moses was not God. It wouldn't matter. That's why God sent His one and only Son, Jesus, who is both God and man, so that He might be accursed and take our place on the cross. Does your heart break like Paul's did for his people? You think about your family members that you just spent Christmas with? Or your co-workers that just spent some time with this past week? It's really easy to look at other people and fall into the trap when they are not believers or they're living a life different than we would want them to live and to say, oh, what's wrong with them? Oh. And be able to point the finger and look down upon them and blame them and this, that, or the other. But Paul had been there recently. He'd been just like them, rejecting Christ. And he doesn't point the finger. He doesn't say, what's wrong with them? Why won't they get it? What's it going to take? This, that, or the other. They deserve what they're going to get. No, he says, I would give up everything for them. And I've been there. And I often get there myself. And I just want to say, church, as your pastor, if, you're, if you don't feel that, let's sit in that a little bit this week. Let's ask the Lord to remind us of how great His salvation is for us. How undeserving we really are. How sinful we really are and what our sin deserves. And maybe when we do that for just a little bit, I mean sit in silence in that a little bit, we'll finally begin to realize that our family members our co-workers, our neighbors who have yet to believe in Christ and are acting like it. Um, 
our hearts wouldn't point the finger, but our hearts would break for them because we would realize were it not for the grace of Christ, we too would be in that same position. Paul speaks of these Jews and says they have such a great privilege. In verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. Israel was called the firstborn of God in Exodus 4.22. It was that they, to them belonged the glory, the glory of God that dwelled in the tabernacle, as was told in Exodus. The covenants, not only the covenant to Abraham, but the covenant to Moses, the covenant to David, the, the new covenant even in Christ, the giving of the law in Exodus 19 and 20 in the, the book of Leviticus. The Israelites had these things. These things that pointed them to the Messiah and their need for a Messiah in the law. The worship. Exodus laid out well how they were to worship the one true and living God. And in addition to the covenants, the promises. The promises of a coming Messiah that would save them. God's one and only Son. Verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the, the leaders, the sons of the twelve tribes of Israel who would go on later to produce Moses and Joshua and the judges and the kings and the prophets. Uh, even Christ Himself, He says. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Not only did they have all of these privileges as listed, they, from their very race, from their very nation, came Jesus Christ, who Paul attributes Godhood to. This is one of the clearest statements in all of the Bible that Jesus Christ is God and worthy of our worship. Something that most other religions that acknowledge Jesus as a man do not believe and agree with. In fact, some have gone so far as to take this verse, which in the Greek has no grammar, so we have to do good translation, good contextualization to be able to add grammar in English, and they've done it very um, imprecisely and said, this doesn't speak of Christ's Godhood. Jesus is just Jesus. God is the one who's blessed forever. Amen. But most faithful translations of God's Word say, no, this is Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is important for us to consider. The Jews who themselves had all of these privileges, and yet they had rejected Jesus. They were living a life apart from Christ. And that's not too far from, from us who live here in America. We were founded by many Christians, not all, but 
many Christians and have many Christian principles even in our historic documents. But that doesn't make America a Christian nation. Uh, We have had the blessing, myself included, many of us who have been born in America, of growing up having been able to hear the gospel. Especially those of us who have grown up in the South, have had churches on every corner um, for many years and many decades, many centuries even, it was uh, a benefit to call yourself a Christian. And so much of the society, not because of their faith, but because of their, their parents or because of where they were born. They were born in America, so they're Christians, right? They're not Muslim. They're not Hindu. They weren't born in the Middle East necessarily or in India, so they're born in America, so they're Christian. You could even rewrite that verse for, for those of us who have been born in America because of the privileges that we have. Where he says they are Israelites, we might say they are Americans, and to them belong the Christian parents, the freedom of religion, the founding fathers, the churches on every corner, programs for kids and youth, vacation Bible school, summer camps, worship to our taste, and preaching to tickle our ears. We have all of these privileges, and yet, how many have rejected Christ? How many have the opportunity to hear of Christ and respond in faith and repentance, and yet how few have? How few are truly repenting of their sins and believing in Christ? And yet our heart should not be, they'll get what they deserve one day, or pointing the finger at them. Our hearts ought to break. Our hearts ought to have sorrow and unceasing anguish for them, that we ought to pray for them. Many of those people have, like I said earlier, not only swam to the shallow end of the pool, but have climbed out of the pool of faith, and they don't want anything to do it because they Rather than asking sincere questions, wanting to know more about God, they have questioned God and wanted to quarrel about God. And Paul puts forward four questions in the rest of Romans 9. We're going to get at two of them this morning. Uh, Four questions that those who rejected Christ in Paul's day might be thinking Questions that I think um, people who have um, spent time in the Bible, spent time in church, uh, might begin to think themselves when they hit the deep end and their ears begin to hurt. Well, what about this? What about this? And Paul's first question, he doesn't put in the form of a question, but he really answers the question that he knows people have in verse 6. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. So what's the question that uh, Paul is really answering here? When he looks out and sees all of these Jews who have rejected the Christ in light of the truth that God is the one who saves and no one separates us from the love of God, he says 
then, then what about all of these Israelites who have rejected Christ? Has the word of God failed? Have the promises to save failed? Have the promises to, that nothing can separate failed? To which Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed or fallen. God's word has not failed. God's word has not fallen. And he goes on to explain why. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Let me read that again. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. If you don't have that verse underlined in your Bible or in our church pew Bible, if it's not underlined, you're free to underline it because that's an important one. And that's what Paul is going to go on to explain in the rest of Romans 9 through 11. That not all who have physically descended from Abraham and been a part of the nation of Israel are actually a part of the true Israel. Not everyone who has descended from Israel or Jacob even is true Israel. And he explains it with some helpful uh, Old Testament quotes. Um, uh, and yet, this is not something new to even Paul. Paul said earlier in Romans chapter 2, verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul is not saying anything new even in the book of Romans, but he's going to go on to explain it, showing how this has already been said even in the Old Testament, how this was being explained. He quotes Genesis 21.12, where it says, But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy, Ishmael. Abraham had more than one son, uh, more than his son Isaac. In fact, he had uh, more than Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, He had Ishmael first when he became impatient waiting for the promise that God would give him a son with his wife Sarah. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy Ishmael and because of your slave woman Hagar. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son which was Ishmael of the slave woman Hagar also because he is your offspring." Look at what Paul writes in verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. 
but, as he quotes, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham had Ishmael first. And though God said in that verse in the Old Testament that he would bless Ishmael and Hagar and care for them, they were not the ones that had the covenant, the promise. They were blessed by God, but they, Ishmael was not the child of promise. And so God is saying, not everyone who physically descended from Abraham is even a part of Israel. Because there's a whole tribe of Ishmaelites. Not, not only that, Abraham had other sons with another woman, Keturah. And they're not a part of the nation of Israel. And so Paul is trying to explain this is nothing new. This is something that you should have seen even in the Old Testament. He says that it's not by flesh, it's by the promise. Look in verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Kids, this is important for you to consider even this morning that your place in heaven is not secured because your parents believe in Jesus. This was true of those in the Old Testament and this is true of those in the New Testament. Uh, their faith in Jesus is not yours just because you have the same last name or because you look like them. You have to take that same faith that they have in Jesus Christ and believe it in your own heart. This is important. Not only for kids that are here with us, but for us as adults. Especially those of us who grew up in a Christian home or grew up going to church. Just because your parents were Christians or you grew up going to church doesn't make you a child of the promise. We're children of the promise by faith, as Paul will go on. But he knows what the Jews' reaction to that is going to be. Um, you know, yeah, but Ishmael was a child not between Abraham and Sarah, but with Hagar. So that's why Ishmael was put aside. And the other children of Abraham were with Keturah, so they're put aside over there. And so Paul says, oh, really? Okay, well, let's go another generation. Look in verse 10. Uh, well, verse 9 uh, wraps up and says, for this is what the promise said, quoting here from Genesis 18.10 and 14. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. God was going to fulfill His promise that Isaac would be the child of promise. But he goes to the next generation, knowing what the Israelites, the Jews, might come back and question again, and says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of molecular election might continue 
Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told that the older will serve the younger. Paul goes to the next generation and says, yeah, that was the case with Abraham, but in the next generation, generation with Jacob, uh, Jacob and uh, Rebekah had, uh, I, I'm sorry, Isaac uh, and Rebekah had two children, same father, same mother, same pregnancy. And yet God chose between the two. And He chose different than they would have chosen. In that day, the older firstborn son uh, would have been given the privileges and the blessings of the firstborn son and the inheritance. And yet God here chooses the older to serve the younger. The younger to receive the promise of the covenant and so even in Rebekah's family, even in Jacob's family, there was a division. There was a, a, a choosing. And that not all of Abraham's family, not even all of Jacob's family, was actually a part of the true Israel. There was always a division in that point. Paul uh, quotes from Genesis 25 there, uh, where the older will serve the younger. And he goes on to even say, from Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, one of those statements that when you get to the deep end, it hurts your ears. And Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. How could that be? How could God hate? I thought God was love. How could he hate? And there's all kinds of ways of explaining this away. But it doesn't do justice to what Paul is trying to explain here. That God chose Jacob and he didn't choose Esau. That there was a division. That God's Word had not failed. God had chosen from the very beginning. And this is not something that Paul is coming up with. Jesus Himself spoke of this. Jesus, in John chapter 8, verse 31, it says that, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, if you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. If what? If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will, you know it, set you free. And they answered Him, We are offspring of Abraham! We are offspring of Abraham and we and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say that you will become free? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you. Kind of like Paul. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. The Holy Spirit bears witness. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. 
The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus says in verse 37, I know, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I know you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and do what you have heard uh, from your father. And you do what you have heard from your father. Jesus was saying, God's word has not failed. You who abide in my word are truly my disciples, and yet my word is not in many of you. Therefore, you are not my disciples. You are not truly Israel, Jesus was saying. This is a hard but an important truth that we need to understand. We need to understand uh, these statements that God is making, these statements of choice, these statements of election. When Paul is quoting from Malachi, he's, Malachi is an Old Testament prophet who wrote to Israel after they had returned back to Jerusalem following their discipline and exile in Babylon. And Israel was having to rebuild Jerusalem and were wondering if they were truly loved by God or if they had been separated from God's love during the exile. Especially when they looked out and saw the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, flourishing. They were wondering, Wondering, does God really love us? Has God really, has God's word failed that he would save us? Has, have we been separated from God and his people because it looks like Edom is doing pretty well over there while we are struggling, having to rebuild our city after many years in exile? And Malachi assures Israel of God's ultimate electing and unconditional love as seen in his love for Jacob. But God's ultimate rejection and overwhelming hatred for Edom. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1 says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say questions like, Paul is raising up at this point. God says, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Are not the Edomites doing really, really well right now? How can you say that you love us when Esau's descendants are doing really, really good? It seems like your word has failed, God. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? 
Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals in the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry. What's the word? Forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God said you have limited perspective and scope. You can't see everything. It may look like on the surface that Edom is doing really, really well, that the descendants of Esau are flourishing, but you don't see everything. I will take care of them. You're the one I have loved. They're the one I've hated. That you're the one I've chosen. They're the ones I have rejected. Jesus speaks like this as well. In John 13, verse 18, he says something like this I'm not speaking of all of you, I know whom I've chosen that there are some whom God has chosen. Charles Spurgeon speaks about this um, undeserving and unworthy um, feeling that we ought to get and humility and uh, hum- being humble that we ought to have. He says, I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chooses me before I was born, or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I could never find any reason in myself for why he would have looked upon me with special love. This is how we ought to feel when we understand God's choosing and God's election. Not because of works. But before we were even born, before we even had the opportunity to do something good or bad, God has chosen. God has elected. God has destined for salvation and will accomplish that salvation. To which, though, people might ask another question. We see that question in verse 14. This one is in the form of a question. With an answer, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? If God loves Jacob and hates Esau, surely there's injustice on God's part. But Paul says, by no means. And then he proves it with two points. He proves that there is no injustice in God quoting two Old Testament texts from the same book. He speaks of two things. One thing that he says to Moses and one thing that he says to Pharaoh. To Moses, in verse 15, he says, "I I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
Some will respond in, when they hear of God's election and choosing. They'll respond in judgment and critique of God, saying, is there injustice? But Paul is um, tr- trying to show us and persuade us that there is no injustice in God and that mercy on one hand and judgment on the other do not negate the justice of God. Just because God is merciful to some and righteously judges others, it does not make God unjust. And Paul defends God's justice by explaining his mercy to Moses. Moses was interceding for the people, asking God to show his favor to them when they were going into the promised land. And God assured Moses that he would go with them into the promised land because he had found favor with them. But he would show them grace and favor on on whomever he wills. And it was not because Moses was good or bad or because Israel deserved it or not, but because God chose to show grace and mercy. Listen. Exodus 33, verse 15. And he, Moses, said to him, that is God, if your presence will not go with me, that is, into the promised land, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other nation of the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man cannot see my face and live. Paul defends God's justice by describing his mercy And he displays his mercy and and explains his mercy by saying, God is God. And he can be compassionate to anyone he wants to be compassionate to. And he can choose to show his mercy to anyone he wants to show his mercy to. Mercy being not receiving the judgment we deserve. We all deserve the judgment. That's what we have to first remember We're not deserving of mercy. We're not deserving of compassion. Romans chapter 3 made that clear. And God has the right as God to show His mercy and compassion to anyone He wants to do it. But some are going to say, that's not fair. Because I don't have time, you just need to go read Matthew chapter 20. There were some people in Matthew chapter 20 who said, that's not fair to Jesus in his parable of the workers 
in the vineyard. Some who worked for 11 hours uh, in agreement with being paid a certain price. Some who worked nine hours in agreement to be paid a certain price. Some who worked just one hour in agreement to be paid the same price. But when the people who worked 11 hours saw the people who worked one hour get paid the same price, those who worked 11 hours all day said, that's not fair. To which the master said, I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. I'm the master. If I choose to be gracious and give to the one who's worked one hour, the same that I've given to the one who's worked an 11-hour day, did we not agree upon this amount? Is God not free to be gracious and show compassion? I urge you, go read Matthew 21 through 16 and consider these truths in light of that. The same is true of God. Is He not allowed to do what He chooses with what belongs to Him? For there is no injustice in God, according to Second Chronicles 19, verse 7. It depends not on human will or exertion. It does not depend upon human desire or effort, but on God who has mercy. Our works and our effort do nothing to accomplish our salvation. Our feelings or our passion do not tip the scales of God's justice. If you were to put all of your sins on one side of a balance, and you were to put all of your righteous deeds on the other side of the balance, all of your good thoughts, all of your good intentions were placed on this other side, even if you had ten or a thousand or a Googleplex of lifetimes of righteous deeds to put over on this side, it wouldn't even begin to weigh down the side of your sins. And yet, one drop of God's mercy on this side would immediately tip the scales so hard and so fast that as we sang earlier, your sins would never be seen again. One drop of God's mercy that maybe if we consider what we know to be true in the New Testament, is equal to one drop of Christ's blood dropped on the other side of the scale would immediately tip the scales in our favor. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. Paul says that God is not unjust because He's merciful to those whom He chooses to be merciful in speaking God's words to Moses, but he also mentions his words to Pharaoh. In verse 17, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, and here he quotes from Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Here he 
God's election is just when he showed it to mercy, to, uh, to show mercy on Moses, and God's election is just when he hardens Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the prime example of rejecting God in the Old Testament. And now Paul is using Pharaoh as a comparison to who? The Jews. Not someone the Jews want to be compared to in this moment. And yet, they are just like Pharaoh. They are rejecting God. But God used Pharaoh's rejection and hardness of heart um, to do what? Look at what it says in verse 17. For this very purpose, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you know the reason that the gospels proclaimed in all of the earth is because many of the Jews rejected Christ? We and you have heard of the good news of Jesus Christ because many who were a part of ethnic Israel rejected it for a time. That there has been this partial hardening on the nation of Israel and most have rejected it. And you ask, well, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. You can go back and read all of the ten plagues. Sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Sometimes it says God hardened his heart. Sometimes it says his heart was hardened. God doesn't harden anyone's heart whose heart isn't already hardened. And yeah, that's a weird sentence, but it's true. God doesn't harden anyone's heart whose heart isn't already hardened because all of our hearts were born hardened. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Church, in a world of unbelief, even in the midst of our country, though it may have had Christian founders and Christian roots. We live in a world of unbelief. And especially nowadays, a world of deconstruction. It may seem that God is unable to save or even keep those who say that they're saved. But that would be radically unbiblical and an unwise position to take. God's Word has not failed and God is not unjust. Perhaps he is doing a greater work than you and I can understand in making known the riches of his glory. If you know Christ, I want to urge you to consider the mercy that has been shown to you today or in the past and even today. Consider the compassion. Consider the fact that God's word has not failed and because it has not failed, you I've had the blessing of hearing the gospel. That ought to break your heart for those who have yet to believe or those who have rejected Christ as their Savior. 
That ought to bring you to your knees in prayer for them. That ought to make you do what the result of this questioning is in Romans chapter 10. And that is to be sent with the good news of the gospel, to proclaim the gospel so that others might hear the gospel, so that others might call on the Christ of the gospel and believe, and everyone who believes will be saved, Romans chapter 10 says. The end result of this, these truths, this mercy and compassion that has been shown to you, believer, is a broken heart for the lost and a going and a, a sentness into the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we don't know whom He desires to show His mercy to. And we won't know until we proclaim the gospel and we see those who rejected in the past finally accept in the present and walk with Him. May our hearts be broken. May... Uh, May the Spirit strengthen us to go out and to proclaim this good news. But if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, let me just say that there is a time and a place for sincere questions. Romans chapter 9 is full of sincere questions. There is a time and a place to question, who is God? Who are we? How does this work but there's a difference between questioning and quarreling. And just because you hear something that hurts your ears in the Bible, it doesn't mean it's not true. It may mean that you need to adjust your ears to the Word of God rather than not listening to the Word of God anymore. And I want to encourage you to not swim to the shallow end and get out of the pool, but to stay and to consider and ask the Lord to make Himself known to you in a real and tangible way. If you sense the Lord being merciful to you even this morning, calling you to realize how big He is and how little you are, how gracious He is and how sinful you are, how merciful He is and how undeserving you are, then just simply pray. You may even confess to the Lord that you don't have all the answers to your questions, but you know that He is God and that you are not. And that He is holy and gracious and merciful and you are not and he sent his one and only son to be accursed and cut off the very word of God who has not failed who died on the cross who took your sin upon his shoulders and was buried in the tomb and rose again conquering sin and death so that all who repent and believe might be saved, so that God's mercy might be shown on any who would turn and repent. So turn and repent today. Believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father,